Let's open our Bibles, please, to Leviticus chapter 2. And we're still talking about the meat offering. But let me read it again quickly. And then we'll talk about some things that we find here. There are just 16 verses. And we need to get up to date on it. And then we'll talk about the peace offering in chapter 3. In fact, before we read that, let me just point out, if you look in Leviticus 1, verse 3, it says burnt sacrifice. You might just mark these in your Bible. Burnt sacrifice and the in chapter 2, verse 1, and you find it over more than one time on both of them, but in 2, verse 1, it says meat offering. And when any will offer a meat offering, circle the word meat offering, Burnt offering in chapter 1. Meat offering in chapter 2. Chapter 3, verse 1. If his oblation be a sacrifice of peace offering. So just circle peace offering. And then in chapter 4, verse 3, the latter part, it says a sin offering. So just circle sin offering. And then you come on over in chapter 5. And there are several places you'll find it, but uh, it tells you in verse 6, and he shall bring his trespass offering. So you have a trespass offering. And it's mentioned more than once, as I say, these offerings by name in each of these chapters. But that way you, you'll get an idea of where we're going with all these offerings. So let's turn back to chapter 2 again and begin reading with verse 1. It says, And when any will offer a meat offering unto the Lord, his offering shall be of fine flour, and he shall pour oil upon it and put frankincense thereon, and he shall bring it to Aaron's sons, the priests, and he shall take thereout his handful of flour thereof and of the oil thereof, with all the frankincense thereof, and the priest shall burn the memorial of it upon the altar to be an offering made by fire of a sweet savor unto the Lord. By the way, the first three offerings are sweet savor offerings. The burnt offering and the meat offering and the peace offering are called sweet savor offerings. The next ones are non-sweet savor offerings. And so we find it says in the last part of verse 2 of a sweet savor unto the Lord. And the remnant of the meat offering shall be Aaron's and his sons. It is the thing most holy to the, of the offerings of the Lord made by fire. And if thou bring an oblation, now actually some of you may wonder, oblation means the act of offering something such as worship or thanks to a deity. The act of offering something such as worship or thanks to a deity. And they did it through these offerings. Uh, verse 4, And if thou bring an oblation of a meat offering, bacon in an oven, it shall be unleavened cakes of fine flour mingled with oil, or unleavened wafers anointed with oil. Now notice it says there, bacon in an oven. In verse 5 it says, If thy oblation be a meat offering, bacon in a pan, it shall be of fine flour unleavened mingled with oil. Thou shalt part it in pieces and pour oil thereon. It is a meat offering. Now, verse 7, If thy oblation be a meat offering, bake it in the frying pan. So you have an oven, a pan, and a frying pan. It shall be made of fine flour with oil. Now, you need to circle those or underline them. 
And thou shalt bring the meat offering that is made of these things unto the Lord. When it is presented unto the priest, he shall bring it unto the altar, and the priest shall take from the meat offering a memorial thereof, and shall burn it upon the altar. It is an offering made by fire of a sweet savor unto the Lord. And that which is left of the meat offering shall be Aaron's and his sons. It is a thing most holy of the offerings of the Lord made by fire. No meat offering which ye shall bring unto the Lord shall be made with leaven. Now remember what I told you leaven is a picture of. It's a picture of evil. It permeates, doesn't it? For ye shall not burn, ye shall, for ye shall burn no leaven nor any honey in any offering of the Lord made by fire. We'll talk about honey in our notes in our uh, lesson. As for the oblation of the first fruits, ye shall offer them unto the Lord, but they shall not be a burnt be burnt on the altar for a sweet savor. Now you get into offerings that are not the ones that we've mentioned, but it's the offering of first fruits, which we'll deal with later on. And every oblation of thy meat offering shalt thou season with salt. Neither shalt thou suffer the salt of the covenant of thy God to be lacking from the meat thy meat offering. With all thine offerings thou shalt offer salt. And if thou uh, offer a meat offering of thy first fruits unto the Lord, thou shalt offer for the meat offering of thy first fruits green ears of corn dried by the fire, even corn beaten out of full ears. And thou shalt put oil upon it and lay frankincense thereon. It is a meat offering. And the priest shall burn the memorial of it, uh, part of the beaten corn thereof and part of the oil thereof, with all the frankincense thereof, it is an offering made by fire unto the Lord. Now we'll talk about the salt when we get to it. Well, I might just mention, if you look at verse 13, it says, it shall be offered with salt. Now eating salt together in the East is a pledge of friendship. And a covenant of salt is uh, spoken of too. And this stands for incorruption and permanence. And salt was used in the sacrifice, in the sacrifices and offerings of the Israelites with the idea of uh, favor and fidelity, or honor and fidelity, I might say, would be better. So when we study these thoughts in our notes, we'll get to the meaning of each and everything. Now then, if you're... We actually will pick up our comments with verse 2 and 3, and then we'll give you the verses wherein our next comments are found. But uh, the remnant of the meat offering, as we've read in verse 2 and 3, shall be Aaron's and his sons. And it is a thing most holy of the offerings to the Lord made by fire. Aaron and his sons, they're priests, and they represent the believer priest in the New Testament. The believer in Christ is a priest. We've given you that time and time again. In 1 Peter chapter 2, says you're a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, a peculiar people. And it says that you should offer up spiritual sacrifices unto God. So all believers are priests in the sight of God. If you read 1 Peter chapter 2, you can find that out. We'll just read a couple of verses so you'll know. In verse 5, it says, First uh, Peter 2 verse 5, Ye also as... Lively stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood. 
You're built up on holy priesthood. Not the preacher, not the deacon, not someone behind the pulpit or standing in the place of authority, but ye are a spiritual priesthood. Now, notice, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Now, on, to, on down, you drop down to verse 9. It's still talking about believers. But it says in verse 9, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should so, show forth the praises of Him who hath called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. So as believer priests, we make our offerings. If you'll turn to uh, Hebrews chapter 13, we'll give you some more about offering sacrifices to God as believer priests. It says in verse 15, Hebrews 13, verse 15, notice, by Him therefore, that is by Christ, and that's the one that's in the context, by Him therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise. That's a spiritual sacrifice. To God continually, that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to His name, but to do good and to communicate, forget not, for with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. Priests were offered to offer sacrifices. To do good and communicate. To do good would have to be with our lives of doing good. Giving of ourselves. To offer praise would be one thing. And then it says to communicate. The word to communicate there means giving. So what do we offer? We offer our persons... We offer our praises, and I put it this way, we offer our purses. That's easy to remember. Persons, praises, and purses are what we have. And that's exactly what this Scripture means. Communicate. So, it's not talking about talking to one another. Brother Bill brought that out in Galatians chapter 6, I believe, verse 5 this morning, which is another one says concerning... It says, let him that is taught in the Word communicate unto him that teacheth in all good things. I believe that's a verse Brother Bill used this morning. And it's, it's a matter of first giving ourselves. Uh, Paul talked about uh, this work of priesthood in the believer in this way. He said to the Corinthians, they first gave their own selves to the Lord and then to us. They first gave their own selves. Uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 1 tells us this offering of ourselves first. It says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. So that's yourself, isn't it? Wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And it tells furthermore, and be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And so, we are taught first to give ourselves, then to give our praises, and then to give our possessions. And all of these are sacrifices. It says, with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. What more can you offer? As a believer priest, what more can you offer? Than your thanks, than yourself, and then your thanks, and then what of what you have. And that's, that's all. By the way, those are the only three sacrifices of the New Testament believer priests that are mentioned. They, that's the only three things that are mentioned. Our praises, our thanks, if you want to put it that way. Our persons and our possessions. 
And by the way, when we offer all that, you know we sing the song, is your all on the altar of sacrifice laid? That's talking about ourself. It's talking about our persons. And do we give praises for all that the Lord has done for us? We're to give thanks to His name. By the way, there's a passage of Scripture. Remember what preached on it not long back where they were children of Israel. I believe it was Jehoshaphat. And they were confronted with a great army. And God says, I just want you to be there in the morning. I want you to go up against them. Remember that sermon? Remember that sermon? Go up against them in the morning. You just be there. And He says, the battle is not yours but the Lord's. And on down it says, and when they begin to sing and to praise the Lord, the enemy started fighting one another. They didn't have to lift a hand. Can you imagine that? The enemy started getting rid of each other. They didn't have to do anything. And it was when that began to happen. By the way, when we began sincerely to worship God and praise God for all that He's done for us, we won't have to worry about our enemies. God will take care of them right, right away. And the Bible says in Isaiah 54 now, verse 17, and I used to have Anna would argue with me about where it was found. Remember that one I wanted you to memorize? Isaiah 54, 17. And what does it say? No weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper, and every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment Thou shalt condemn. It says, This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is of me, saith the Lord. I did get it right, didn't I? Okay. And uh, so, if you'll memorize that verse, no weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper. Romans chapter 8, Jesus said, uh, uh, Paul said of Jesus, He said, Who is he that condemneth? Who's going to condemn you? It's Christ that died and risen again. And He's even at the right hand of God. He goes on to say, Who shall separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord? Shall tribulation, persecution... He named, calls the role. And He says, I'm persuaded that none of these things... He says, We're more than conquerors through Him that loved us. And none of these things shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, back to Leviticus chapter 2. What were we talking about? Okay, that was Aaron and his sons were priests. That's where we got off of that. Now then, verses 4, 5, and 6, we talked about the oven, the pan, and the frying pan. We read that Scripture. And it says it shall be with fine flour, made of fine flour with oil. So we want to study bacon in an oven, bacon in a pan, bacon in a frying pan. And these things speak of Christ in three different kinds of sufferings that he had. They're typical of Christ's sufferings. First of all, bacon in an oven is typical and symbolical. Now, some of these notes you might want to write down. Bacon in an oven is typical of Christ's suffering for righteousness. And that speaks of his inward sufferings. As a righteous servant of God, Christ suffered in the midst of, of the scene contrary to his nature. And from the cradle of Bethlehem to the grave of Joseph of Arimathea, where they placed Christ, Christ suffered inwardly in an oven. That's inside, isn't it? The heat and the fire and the intense heat there in the oven. That's inward. Inward sufferings. And bacon in a pan is typical of 
his suffering by the power of sympathy. This unfolds the deep secrets of his tender heart. The human sorrow and human misery always uh, touched the Lord Jesus Christ anywhere he was. And that was his inner being. That's bacon in a pan. And being perfect, he felt the sorrow of humanity in himself and in itself. Remember when he came to the grave of Lazarus, the Bible says Jesus wept. But the Bible says he groaned in the spirit. When you think of death, many times it's just expressed with an inward groaning, with an inward feeling of the sorrows of death. And I know I've experienced much of it lately. Inside. And you don't really express it in words or anything. And uh, by the way, that's a picture Ron and Sharon brought, and it has a memorial to my wife right underneath. If you didn't see it, step by and look at it. But uh, all of us know what that is. Some in a deeper sense than other. Well, Jesus had great sympathy for human misery. Uh, I've preached a sermon and brought out when it said, he's standing at the grave of, he came to Lazarus' grave and, and uh, Martha and Mary were there, you know, and it says, Jesus wept. And I was one, uh, not, I was trying to express maybe what Jesus felt when he wept. Possibly what sin brings upon mankind. The Bible says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And, and the sad picture of mankind from the beginning, from Adam on down to our present time and in the future, as long as men are born and live and upon this earth and die. And the, the sorrow that's brought forth because the Bible tells us that God said to, to Eve, in sorrow thou shalt bring forth children. Said to the man, in the sweat of thy face thou shalt earn bread all the days of thy life. The ground with thorns and thistles thou would bring forth. The ground. And so all of these things are attached way back to our federal head, Adam. You know, I'm going to have a talk with him when I get to heaven. I hope. And say, look, fellow, why couldn't you, why did you have to blame that on the woman? In fact, why did you have to go and take of that fruit in the first place? But, you know, Adam being, in a sense, a type of Christ, only in the opposite direction, it was for the love of the woman that he did this. And Jesus, for the love of the church, gave himself. He's the second Adam. And he gave himself for our salvation. So you can look at it in many ways, and there are many ramifications about it. But then we find that. When Jesus beheld the human family struggling beneath the weight of guilt and wretchedness, He had perfect sympathy toward them. And that's why He died on the cross, to save us. Because He felt for us. He beheld the whole creation groaning under the yoke of the curse. In Romans chapter 8, it says, "...the whole creation groaneth in pain and travail until now." And they're waiting for the change that will come. Romans chapter 8, let me read it few verses for you, uh, beginning with verse uh, 18. Let's begin with verse 18. Romans chapter 8, verse 18. Uh, Paul says, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. I like that verse, don't you? Yeah. All the sufferings of this present time are not even worthy to be compared with the glory. Now look, for the earnest expectation of the creature 
waited for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who has subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Now look at verse 22. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. That means not only man, but all of creation. Thorns on the roses, the birds singing in the minor key, and all the things of man, all the groaning of all the creation, and the trees bringing forth their uh, leaves. And then in the fall and winter, the leaves dying and falling to the ground. Groaneth man going out and uh, tilling the ground. And what does he find? Weeds growing. Some of you have it on your lawns. You say, how do you get rid of these pesty things? I don't know. And they've had every kind of thing you could squirt on them and try to dig them up and hold them down and everything. They come back again. The Bible says, break up your fallow ground. If you don't break it up and plant some good seed there, it's just going to be full of weeds. That's all. But all of creation is like that. But there's one day coming deliverance. And uh, we can look forward to that time. And you still have Romans 8. Look at verse 23. And not only they, but ourselves also, that means human beings, all of us, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, that means those who are born again, even we ourselves, all Christians, grown within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. We're already redeemed for our salvation. We already have been redeemed by the blood of Christ, but we're waiting for what? The redemption of our body. For we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for that which is not seen, that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. And so we have the potential and the promise and the hope of a life to come. By the way, it's called that blessed hope in the Bible. And if we didn't believe that that was God's promise to us, what would be the use of anything in life? Paul says, if we in this life only have hope in Christ, in this life only, we're of all men most miserable. Some of these days, we're going to walk on the streets of gold. There are going to be the twelve trees with twelve manner of fruits that will be healing for all the nations. And the Lord Himself will be the light of that heavenly place. He'll have no need of of the sun or the moon or any other lights, but the Lord Himself will be the light thereof. And so, we can look forward to a time that will be better than it is now. Thank God for that. It says, Everyone that hath this hope in Him purifieth himself, even as He is pure. John says in 1 John chapter 3, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not because it knew Him not. And it says, Beloved, now are we the sons of God. Right now. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And then it goes on to say, And everyone that hath, every man that hath this hope in Him purifieth himself, even as He is pure. To know that you're going to be like Jesus and to know that you're going to be saved and in glory, what does it cause you to do? It causes you to want to live a godly life. You know that? 
And Baptists have been mighty falsely accused when they say, well, if you believe in security of the believer, you believe you're going to heaven, and you believe that you've got the promise of everlasting life, you know, you'll just go out and live like the devil. That ain't so, friend, if you'll pardon my English. It's just not true. The aspiration and the inspiration for living for God is based upon the surety of the believer's salvation. That's what it's based upon. All through the Bible. Scriptures that assure us of our salvation are Scriptures that also cause us to want to live a Christian life. So don't be misunderstood and misled by some of the statements that people make. Just because you believe you're saved and you're going to heaven doesn't mean you're not going to live for God. Titus puts it this way. Titus chapter 2, verse 13. What does he say? He says, "...the grace of God..." Listen. "...the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared unto all men." Well, it's appeared. Some have accepted it. But it says, "...what does the grace of God that brings salvation do?" Look at the next verses. Titus chapter 2, beginning, I believe it's verse 13. The next verse says, what does it say? Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly and righteously and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us that He might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto Himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. What does the grace that saves do? The grace that saves you teaches you. Didn't the grace that saved you teach you something? Sure did. And it teaches us Denying ungodliness, it tells us what not to do. So we're to deny the negative side. Ungodliness and worldly lust, that we should live, now look, three things, soberly and righteously and godly. Soberly has to do with ourselves. We live as God would have. We look at the inward. Righteously means how we live before others. And godly is how we live toward God. Inward, outward, and upward. And that's the way we're to live. And what, does, what teaches us to do that? The grace of God that saves. The grace of God that saves doesn't teach us to live away from God, but toward God. It doesn't teach us to live the wrong kind of life, but the right kind of life. So these people that say, well, you know if I believe like you Baptists that I was saved, eternal security and all that stuff, that you preach, I'll just go out and live any way I wanted to. Well, you might, but if you were saved by grace, you'd have a different want to. Because God gives you a want to do different. Thank God for that. He not only saves us, but He he saves us in order that we will want to live right. And people have misunderstood God's Word, haven't they? And they've left the wrong kind of emphasis when they say those things that they say. Now then, we talked about baking in an oven, baking in a pan, and how Jesus feels of the whole creation. And He beheld the whole creation grown under the yoke of the curse. And baking in a frying pan is typical of suffering by anticipation. The dark shadow of the cross casts itself upon the path of Jesus from the very cradle unto the grave. The shadow of the cross. No wonder in Gethsemane, Great drops of blood poured from him. His soul's his soul was exceeding sorrowful even unto death. He says to Peter, James, and John, he says, "My soul." Well, he said to all of them, 
My soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto death. And he took Peter and James and John a little further with him into the garden while he was in such agony. And remember there he prayed, O Father, if it be possible. This was the suffering that he went through. His soul was exceeding sorrowful unto death. And he said, Father, if if it be possible that this cup pass from me, let this cup pass from me. But he said, nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. The will of God. And he wasn't talking about escaping the cross. He meant that cup of suffering, that inward suffering that he was already and would be culminated in in the final suffering on the cross. But he says, uh, this cup, this cup that I feel of being burdened with man's sin and all of his sin and all of his sufferings, if there's any other way. And he wasn't trying to dodge the cross in any sense of the word but that what he was going through. But he said, Nevertheless, not as I will, but thy will. This uh, bacon in a frying pan, he was misunderstood. He was in the frying pan all the time. He was misinterpreted. And he was abused. He was accused of being mad and so many things. He was even called a devil, wasn't he? And he was betrayed by his own familiar friend, one of the twelve. He was denied by Peter, a very close one. He was deserted by all of them. He was mocked. He was buffeted. That means beaten upon and spit upon. He was crowned with a crown of thorns. Jesus went all through this. He was condemned and finally nailed to a cross and a Roman spear thrust into his side the sufferings that Jesus went through. But God says in Isaiah, He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. And by His knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for He shall bear their iniquities. And He went through with the sufferings and death on the cross. We sing that song, The Old Rugged Cross. I wonder sometimes how deeply the the words of that song penetrate into our minds. I know we sing it, and we sincerely sing it, but can we really enter into the depth of what Jesus did for us on the cross of Calvary? That's why in studying these offerings and these sacrifices back here, we can see that there's more than just one thing attached to them. Remember when we said the whole burnt offering? And we pointed that out. And then we pointed out the, the, later the sin offering, which we haven't got to yet. The peace offering, sin offering, trespass offering. How we gave you a verse of Scripture that showed you both aspects of that. Now, you remember what that verse of Scripture was? Does anyone know in Ephesians what? Chapter 5 and verse what? 2. And what it says? It says, And walk in love, even as Christ also hath loved us, and give him, given Himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God, for us and to God, for a sweet-smelling savor. So the sweet-smelling savor could not be connected with a sin offering because it's a non-sweet-savor offering. It had to be connected with the whole burnt offering. That's a sweet-savor offering. So in that one sacrifice of Christ on the cross, when it says for us, that means for our sins, doesn't it? And it, when it says an offering to God, means it's a burnt offering and it's a sweet-savor offering, holy and acceptable to God, Because God was well pleased with it. And in that one verse, you can see both aspects of Christ's death on the cross.
Turn to Ephesians 5, verse 2, and look at it for your own, with your own eyes. Ephesians chapter 5, and verse 2. Notice what it says. It says, And walk in love, as Christ also had loved us. He loved us and gave Himself for us. And had given Himself for us. Circle the word us. For us. I have underlined under for and then circle us. An offering. He offered Himself for us. Well, that'd have to be for our sins, wouldn't it? Now look. And a sacrifice to God. Mark that one down. To God. To God for a sweet-smelling savor. The to God means He offered Himself as a whole burnt offering to God. But He offered Himself as a sin offering for us. And I believe that it's worthy of our note to find that in the burnt sacrifice. And then later on when we'll study the sin offering, we'll find that it was for the sins of the people. And we haven't got there yet. But this will give you an advanced thought to uh, help you to understand what these offerings are all about. Now let's continue in chapter 2, verse 8, 9, and 10. And we've already read it. It's an offering made by fire of a sweet savor unto the Lord. And then uh, the comments on it, Aaron's, Aaron and his sons are typical of the believer. Not only the believer as a priest, but the believer. We're to feed upon the remnant of the meat offering. Remember, the, the balance of it was to be eaten by Aaron and his sons. What is food for our soul? The word meat, as Bill mentioned this morning, and I've mentioned already before, it means food. It has to do with whatever kind of food that may be given. And so they're to feed upon the remnant of the meat offering, and no one but the priest could enjoy it. And that's why as believers, and as priests, uh, believer priests, we must feed upon Christ. And it must be eaten with unleavened bread. Unleavened. We cannot feed upon Christ so long as we feed upon the husk of this world. If you're feeding upon the husk of this world, you're not feeding upon Christ. And the Bible teaches that He is, he is food for the soul. That His Gospel is the food for our soul. And you know that the Gospel is meat and food for every believer. We sing a song, several songs to that effect, but one in particular that says... Uh, Tell me the old, old story. Tell me the story of Jesus. And tell me the story most precious. And then there's another one that tells us that tell me the story of Jesus about uh, that everyone has heard it the same way. All of us have heard it the same way. It's the same old Gospel. But it should never be uh, boring to any of us. Now, sometimes we preachers can be boring, but the Gospel is not. But... When we preach the Word, it should feed the souls of God's children. Amen. That's what it's for. If you'll study, you'll find that when the children of Israel, we've already studied in the book of Exodus, and you'll find it especially in the book of Numbers, where they complained about this manna that they were being fed with. In fact, Numbers is a better place. And God sent fiery serpents among them. They complained about this manna said, we are here in the wilderness and we have nothing but this manna that God has given. Now, that manna was typical of what? Jesus Christ. He says, I'm the true bread that came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. So, just as the children of Israel became fed up and tired of that manna, do we intend to become tired of Jesus and of His Gospel? If we do, we're in trouble. 
we're in trouble. That's why when it is preached in truth, we should love to hear it preached. What is the good news of the gospel? How that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Is that boring to you or is that food for your soul? How that He was buried and He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures? His death and His resurrection? Should not that feed our souls anytime we hear it preached? Why should it feed our souls? Because He was delivered for our offenses and raised again for our justification. And that being so, because we believe on Him who died for our sins and raised again for our justification, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Read the last verses of the fourth chapter of Romans. And then Romans chapter 5, verse 1 says, Therefore, and that always points back to what you've just read, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because our righteousness is declared and we're justified by faith. And so, to know that my sins are forgiven, to know that I'm now justified by faith in Christ, should not that bring peace to me? That will bring peace. Because before that happened in our hearts, and before what Jesus did for us on the cross, we were condemned and under sin. And the wrath of God would be abiding upon us. John chapter 3, verse 36 tells us about that wrath. It says, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not have life. But he said, But the, the wrath of God abideth on him. Look at John 3.36. John 3 verse 18 says, He that believeth on Him is not condemned. Is not condemned. John 3.18 But he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So if you think of those uh, Scriptures, it will cause us to understand uh, that we feed upon Christ. And when we're feeding upon the husk of this world, we cannot feed upon Christ. It must be eaten, back in our text now in the comments, it must be eaten in the holy place. Our position and our practice and our person and our association must be holy before we can truly feed upon the meat offering. What is it? Our position is holy before God. We're set apart. Our practice should be holy. Our person should be holy. Our associations should be holy. That takes us back to what we've just been talking about, doesn't it? Earlier. Our persons, our practice, our associations. By the way, your associations are very important. You will become like those that you associate with in some form or fashion. If you want to stay right, associate with the right people. And I won't tell you about the drunken man and the pig again. Because you've heard that many times. But that's bad associations. And uh, I think I gave you a copy of that if you want it. I don't know if I have any more or not. Probably got some more if you need them. But anyway, <coughs> the thing about it is, by the way, no one, I never, I've never heard that from anyone but my dad. And he quoted it to me because he had to deal with, uh, with people like that all of his life as, a, as an officer. But the thing about it is, it's true, isn't it? So don't associate with people that are doing the wrong thing, or if you do, you may eventually end up wrong. And so, if you have been associating with those, 
break off those associations and get you some new friends. Not that you have to shun other people, but just get you some friends you can run around with that you won't have to do the kind of things that you that you may be tempted to do. And then you'll be all right. Well, our time is gone, and I'm not through yet. Well, we'll pick it up there, but I'm ten minutes late already.